14 years ago, my second book was about to be released, and I was euphoric. It was a biography of Barry Bonds titled Love Me, Hate Me, Barry Bonds and the Making of an Antihero, and I couldn't have worked harder. Two years, probably 500 interviews, thousands of pages of clips. Again, I was euphoric. And then, as pub date approached, I learned that another Bonds-related book, Game of Shadows, would be coming out three weeks before mine. And despite my editors saying it would be okay, and my family saying it would be okay, well, I knew it wouldn't be okay. So when Game of Shadows spent weeks and weeks atop the New York Times list, deservedly so, and my book sank to the bottom of the ocean, I thought, there can be no worse release awfulness than coming out after another book of the same subject. Unless your book is released during a global pandemic. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Yaron Weitzman, the dazzling Bleacher Report basketball writer and author of the fantastic new book, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports which comes out today as uh, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. This is episode number 147. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. You're wrong. You know what? This is the 780th time we tried to connect this. Can we spin positive on the fact that you wrote a great book that's truly a wonderful book that I not only read but blurbed, and it's coming out in the middle of a pandemic? I, uh, could we spin positive? Sure. You know, well, I can do, I, this is what you were saying before, right? Like I can take the publicist line. Well, people need something to do now. So this will fill that. I don't think that's how this works, but sure. Why not? Um, uh, here, here's a positive. There are people, you know, you have sources or people around the NBA who like, you know, help you out or, you know, that they've read the book. I've gotten good feedback from them who I don't think they would have read the book otherwise because they would have been too busy, but they, uh, they're all home quarantined. So that's been nice. So look at that. How about that? We'll take that as positive. <laughs> I think we should, I think we should actually make this a session. So I just want to say the name of the book is tanking to the top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. I read it. It's great. Your is a great writer. It's about the Sixers. Um, and I, and I, I got to say, like when I had my USFL book come out last year, I, I pushed it because truly nobody wanted the book. No one mm-hmm. I couldn't get a book deal. I fought for a book deal. I got crap money. And I really pimped that book hard as a book nobody wanted. Look, here's a book. Nobody thought it should be published. I had to fight for a deal. I made no money on it. Blah, 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 blah. I think there's something to be said for here's a guy who wrote a book. It's his first book. It's really good. And it's coming out at the worst possible time. <laughs> I do. I swear to God. I think that's a pretty good. I don't know. Have you tried milking that one yet? I've done the. Uh, I made this a joke on Twitter the other day, but I'm doing the move where like I'll spend like two hours scrolling through Twitter and just anytime someone posts, "Hey, anyone know anything good to do during a pandemic?" You know, I'll put a link to my uh, to my home book. And oh, say, like, I, I I heard this was good. You know, stuff like that. Or um, yeah, I've done that a lot. <laughs> so that's one of the answers. Um, yeah, I mean, other than that, I'm just kind of yeah owning it. Like exactly. I don't know how else. What else am I supposed to do? You know, I've, I've used the joke. I hear it's a great, t- great way to pass the pandemic about 14 times a day. Right? right. I don't know. What else? What else do I have? Maybe uh, if you if you read one Philadelphia 76ers team book <laughs> during a pandemic, make it take it to the top. I, I steal that. I'll steal that. I like that. I uh, yeah, that's pretty good. How are you promoting the book? Like, what are you doing? 
this all changed literally within the past few days, right? Beforehand, I was doing normal stuff. Um, part of my goal was because I'm, you know, a nobody for the most part, right? Like, which is fine. Um, you know, I did stuff. I tried to do some stuff a little earlier with some – called in some favors with some of the uh, – either like a guy like Howard Beck. Um, these guys, the rights to Ricky Sanchez guys who are these podcast hosts in Philadelphia who I write about in the book. And they have this really loyal and fervent Sixers fan base. So I went on their podcast um, basically trying to like get in the stream. So hoping there would be some kind of trickle-down effect, right? That was my goal. And I'm actually glad I did that. You know, it's good I didn't hold everything for a week of publishing, which is this coming Tuesday, because that would have been just a mess. Um, so, yeah, other than that, and now it's really just the, yeah, it's a lot of those kind of tweets. I went out and I said, you know, I'll fill anybody, anybody needs to fill any sort of podcast, content, radio show void. I'm your guy. I'll talk Sixers for as long as you want. Um, I posted that, like, you know, I'll, uh, I'm still waiting to be taken up on this one, but, like, I'll I'll lecture to college classes and Zoom, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I was supposed to do a uh, a reading on Thursday night. This gal Farsi letters, which is this thing oh, yeah. that happens. In, yep. Yep. Um, I might try to do that over Zoom or Twitter. Trying to, I'm not good at technology. That's one of my problems. So I'm gonna try to figure that one out. But see if I can do that digitally. I mean, I don't know. Um, yeah, <laughs> a lot of that stuff, right? And see what happens. I guess see what comes up organically. You alluded to this in our failed previous recording effort. Like it which makes, one? The fifth one. It makes me. Um, <laughs> It makes me a little sad for you. Um, because, oh, thank you. Well, I just – and it's not even a matter of sales or not sales. Like my next book is my ninth book. So I've, I've written more books than you. And every time a book comes out, I think for anyone, I really do. I think you could talk to Jane Levy or John Ige or whoever, Montville or Stephen King or whoever. Mm-hmm. And they'd all feel the same way. A book coming out is the culmination of a lot of work, a lot of sweat, uh, a lot of thankless nights, a lot of sitting in front of a laptop doing stuff that's really boring. And it's a celebration. And for, you know, as Lee Montville said to me a long time ago, it's a very unnatural thing that you write a book and you're, you're basically underground for two years and you pop out of your hole for two weeks and you, you kind of get celebrated and then you go back into the hole. And I think it freaking sucks that you won't get to fully enjoy the celebration the same way. And I, I, I wonder, do you, do you at least feel a sense of satisfaction? Is, was there still, when, the, when you receive the book or when you see the book in the store, you see it on Amazon, do you have a sense of accomplishment and a sense of satisfaction? Uh, yeah. So, right. You said it was a hundred percent, right? Like, yeah, like this was, like I said to my wife the other day, like earlier and I'm all, and I, obviously there are worse things out there, but this is, yeah, it's supposed to be a celebration of me. Like the first book for sure. Um, just like a celebration of not even just the book, just like sports writing and where I'm at, right? A hundred percent. That's part of it and with friends and family and all that stuff. And I was looking forward to that. What's weird. So like, yeah, I had some of the satisfaction parts, like the book's coming. That was really cool. Holding the heart, the first, the paperback, you know, the, uh, galley, then the hardcover. Um, it's sort of now there's almost like it's anticlimactic, right? Cause the book, it's not, it comes out Tuesday, but the only way anyone's ordering this book or getting this book is, you know, via Amazon basically right now, right? If you're home in a pandemic, like the, I, I would love to, <laughs> whatever the normal percentage is, which I'm sure tilts toward Amazon type, uh, Amazon type places, um, in general, yep. right? I imagine like what 99% of these book sales in the next month are going to be Amazon, right? Who's going to Barnes and Noble or to an indie bookstore to get a book? I maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I doubt it. So it's like, it's kind of t- it's take it's undercut the whole idea of a book, the book 
uh, release date. And that part's weird. It's like this book came to me and it's in pre-orders and it's just like, okay, now we just kind of keep rolling on. And that part is a little strange. And I think, and that was definitely something I was looking forward to, right? Like the idea of like, I wake up and like, oh, my book comes out today. That's really cool. And really there's going to be no difference. Did you have a signing where like mom and dad and all the cousins or whatever were going to come? So it's funny. It was probably no, <laughs> not really. Like I purposely didn't do the like Barnes and Noble on the Upper West Side, which would have been exactly my in-laws and my parents and like my aunts, and I'd be reading for them for some reason. Um, but I was going to do like, a reading, right? I was going like I mentioned a reading. I thought a lot of friends and family would come to that, um, and then you know I get drinks with friends and family after. Like that was part of the goal. And uh, now I guess I'm mostly just drinking by myself, but I don't know. It's really like, yeah, that part is kind of out. So, you know, like my, my wife's trying to be, she's been great and she's saying, you know, we'll do it, we'll do it when it happens, like June, July, at this rate, you know, September 2024, we'll all be allowed out. But, uh, but just, yeah, it won't be the same. Like, I'm, it's, it's fine. It doesn't, it's not the worst thing ever, but yeah, it's kind of uh, deflating for sure. The guy who does the theme music for my podcast is a, is a rapper named MC White Owl, and he used to be in mm-hmm. a pop group called uh, Bad Ronald. And their debut, they had a song that was getting all sorts of MTV airplay in the lead up to their album release. And their album dropped on September 11th, 2001. I've talked to them about <laughs> it a million times. And it's just like, and the funny thing is the album had an American flag on the cover. And people thought they were trying to capitalize on September 11th. Not oh, so it's like, it's, it's even the worst. It's like, yeah. so you, go, you don't get the traction and you get criticized. Yeah, it's exactly. Like... <laughs> but I do think the thing you have in your favor truly is no matter if the book sells better. I told you this, if the book sells better than you anticipate, people will say, wow, this book came out in the middle of a pandemic. Like your Amazon numbers are not bad at all right now. I'm looking at you on Amazon. Yesterday you were in the 2000s for a book that hasn't come out yet. Like you're hanging in there. And if your book does better than expected, people will be like, wow. And if your book doesn't do that well, well, it came out during a pandemic, during a season when the Sixers aren't playing well. I just think you're you're better. In case you're freaking out about your future as a book writer, I would not. <laughs> personally, I wouldn't. No, that. it's funny, right? To be, on that part, I'm really okay. It's more, you know, it's more like the selfish part where like, no, I wanted to like, I wanted to have a party this week, right? That, that's the way to summarize it, right? I wanted to do that and that's not happening. And that's fine. Like no, no reason for anyone else to cry about that but yeah it's kind of uh, it's kind of annoying for sure you should uh you should get a t-shirt that says i wanted a party this week and i just ended up on jeff perlman's stupid <laughs> podcast <laughs> all right let's talk sixers the book is called tanking to the top as i already said the philadelphia 76ers and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports i read the book i thought the book was freaking great i think you're an excellent writer um the sixers can i say they wanted nothing to do with this book or they wanted little to do with this book uh, it was nothing. Let's say I had, let's say I worked on this book um, 18 months, right? It was nothing for 17 months and a quarter, 17 and a quarter months. Okay. And little for three weeks. How about that? Is that a good way to put it? Like, so, and what I, what I mean, I'll, I'll explain, but nothing, nothing, nothing right before I, um, right before I, uh, <laughs> right before I submitted my draft, my first draft, I sent them a list of like 20, I called them negative questions or points, I should say, that, you know, offering them the ability to respond. And I was very clear. I wrote like, you know, I put, that was funny. I emailed, um, I emailed like three PR people, the owners, the coach, the GM, like the CEO. I, I put everyone on the email. Um, was it one email that watched. you CC to everybody? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, exactly. Um, and cause there had been a bunch of emails back and forth and some had been a lot of, uh, ignoring of me saying, you know, two months left now, guys, if anyone wants to one month left. Okay. Stuff like that. Um, and I was very clear in that list, like, and I wrote, you know, these are just negative, qu- negative stuff. Doesn't mean the whole book is negative. So, and this was an example I gave. If, if a guy like former player Lavoy Allen says that Brett Brown was the nicest coach he ever had, I'm not putting that in there because I don't think you have to respond to. 
But if person X said, you know, Brett Brown, let players do whatever they wanted. Um, well, what would Brett Brown say? Right. Things right. like that. After that, it was like a light bulb went off and like, oh, wait, there's actually a book coming out. Maybe we should uh, go back and forth a little on this. And that led to some weird off the record conversations, which I mean, they call them off the record, but they're really on background because they're telling you off the record. But like they're giving you information that they want you to use to clarify things, which I think really is background. Right. So do they say uh, this is off the record? They say this is off the record, yeah, but with the obvious intention that, like, you know, if uh, if person X is saying we're we're off the record, but he's correcting me saying number three on this is wrong because I said X and Y and Z. Like, I mean, that's oh, yeah. obviously like that's I'm I'm supposed to use that information or I'm supposed to take that information, right? That's a, so. Yeah. Um, so that's why, yeah, I guess that'd be the long-winded way of answering your question. Strange process. You know, you're going to do this book. You pitch this book. Well, let's, let's actually go to the beginning. You, you say you're a no-name. I absolutely would not say that. You're a very respected writer. You've written a lot for Slam, a lot for Bleacher Report. You decide you want to write a book about the 76ers. Um, number one, I guess, why did you decide that would be your book, and how did you then go about getting a book deal? I decided it because I kind of reverse engineered it, right? That's kind of the phrase I use. Like I was covering them a little bit during the playoffs in, in 2017, 2018 because I'm in New York and the Knicks and Nets stink. So I needed someone to cover a little bit. So I would go to Philly every now and then that year um, and thought during the playoffs, oh, I always wanted to write a book. This seems like there'd be a topic here. Some uh, there'd be you know stuff here for for a book. Let me uh, let me look into that and. And I also, the other part was, I said, I don't see anyone else doing this, which in you know hindsight was uh, very wrong. There were like three other people at one point trying to write a Sixers book. Um, from there, it's funny, like it wasn't, I think I told you this the first time we spoke on one of these, right? But it wasn't like I did the Jewish geography thing and that gets me in touch with a, uh, like I knew a sports media agent I used to play basketball with who then knew a literary agent. Who put, he put me in touch with a literary agent who liked the idea from the beginning and kind of said, yo, here's how to, here's some proposal examples. I reached out to people like you, got other examples, spent the summer working on a proposal and he got me a book deal in July. I was lucky. It was strange. It, like the proposal was hard, but the whole thing was pretty, happened pretty fast in a good way. I was, uh, I was lucky about that. How many pages was the proposal? Oh, that's a good one. I want to say like 50 double space, right? I think something like that. The proposal is hilarious because if you look back at it now, it is it is such bullshit. Like I will talk to person X, Y, and Z and ask them this and the book will be about this and so little of that came to pass, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. I've never written a book that had anything, any resemblance to the proposal. <laughs> I mean, never, ever, ever because and there, there are exceptions to this rule, but generally speaking, you're not going to deep dive research the subject until you're actually getting paid to do it and you have the time oh, to do it. Oh, of course. <laughs> like, that's the whole thing. Like, I don't like, I mean, right in this business, I'm not in like jury. I try to do as little work for free as I can, right? right. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, right. So it would actually be, if you think about it, it'd be an indictment of your reporting abilities if the book came yes. back and matched the proposal. That'd be ridiculous. Yes. 100%. 100%. So did you have different did you have more than one bid on the book? Did you have to decide between publishers or was it just one place? To be honest, I, I kind of like my agent was like very the whole time. He was very um no, this is good. like it was never if it was when we get this done. And like he called me one day and said, I have a good deal. I'm going to go back and forth. People, but it's going to be this person. He got me a good number. And like that was it. It was pretty. uh I kind of left it all to him and I trusted him and I, because I was set up with him through somebody I knew, it made me more trust, like I was trustful in what he was doing and that he wouldn't screw me, which maybe is wrong, right? Or I mean, in hindsight, it was right, but maybe that was naive of me. It, like, it was pretty, I don't know, I don't want to say easy, that's the wrong word, like stressless, other than writing a proposal, but otherwise I kind of put my trust in him and he took care of it and we went from there. And did you, how did you decide how long you would have to write the book? They say jump, I say how high, right? They, they gave me, a, like the publisher gave me a timeline and that was kind of... Like, yes, my first book. Wait, so how long did you have to write the book? 
it ended up being like it was like a, it was like a year, right? So I remember I got the call about like we have a book deal. So it was in, I was in summer league covering summer league. So that was July 2018, and I submitted last summer. I think I held them off a couple extra months. Like I think I was supposed to submit July 1st, and I ended up like giving the final final first draft in September, um, and doing some of it on the fly. But yeah, it was about 12, 14 months, on the, which was kind of crazy. Okay, so I'm fascinated by this. You get a book deal. You know you have this amount of time. Um, you've never done this before. Mm-hmm. How do you decide how you're going to go about it, and and how do you go about it? Yeah, it took me a while to find my comfort zone. Like I downloaded what's the program? Uh, Scrivener is that what it's called? I don't know like, what it is. Like that? A, there's like some kind of program that people use. It's supposed to be like super organized your notes and your things like that. Um, authors and people write history stuff use um whatever i but exactly so i download that i ended up not using like it took me a while to realize no i like google docs and like that's just how my brain works and how i always process things and just folders um so it took me a while like it was weird kind of laying out you know like okay this time i'm gonna organize things ah this isn't working for me you know in month two let me try to reorganize things um so there was that part in terms of the basic like file organization. Then I always had the idea that I wouldn't start writing. You know, I'd base, I'd pretty much split it up like six months reporting, six months writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I kind of kept to that in that I didn't start writing until about six months in. But the reporting part, like, I mean, that never stopped. Right. And that like even as I was writing final chapters or like reviewing things, you realize as you're putting chapters together, you're like, oh, wait, I'm missing a scene here. Something doesn't work here. Or, like, I would love some more information. You're calling people on the fly as you're putting those together. Um, so it's a lot of trial and error. Yeah, pretty much like and what I ended up doing is just kind of divided into like, I mean, to get nitty gritty on it. Right? I, I made a Google folder for. I mean, I made a separate Google, like a whole file folder for the book and then in there different folders and pretty much like every character, every main character, you know, have their own folder and separate list of contacts and notes and interviews and stuff like that. And those then get filed into chapters. I don't know. It's kind of like weird, a lot of copy and pasting, but it ended up working for me. It's probably not an efficient way to do it. But your first sort of reach out to the Sixers and how quickly did it take for you to realize they were not going to help you and that that would be sort of an obstacle for you? I reached out to them pretty early on saying, you know, I'm doing this, want to give you guys a heads up. Because um, I had a decent relationship with them, you know, nothing great, but just a normal, decent relationship that like an MBA reporter has with a uh, PR staff. Um, and they said originally, they were very nice. They said, congratulations, sounds great. Um, I think they told me we have, an, I don't know if they gave me the number five. The number five was definitely used at the time in terms of how many other people had been in touch about writing a book on the process in them. Mm-hmm. But it might not have been that one. Um, but we're just saying no to everybody. Um, but to, so I actually, I thought that would be the answer. I kind of assumed at first they would say, nah, that's kind of how it works often. But when you're, when you still, when you keep showing up or, you know, they get wind of who you're talking to a lot of times, I think, or the stuff you're getting, you know, when they hear that stuff or showing up or seeing you or things go deeper and they realize, oh, this is real. Oh, you're getting stuff. Um, often they'll kind of say, okay, let's talk. Um, and I thought that would happen. And uh, I guess to their credit, it really never did. So power to them for staying strong, I guess. So you try to read just an example. Obviously, there's some major characters in the book. Uh, Joel mm-hmm. Embiid is probably, I would think, the centerpiece of what this team is and sort of their identity in the modern era uh, in the same way maybe Iverson was. Um, how are you, with, with the team not really being helpful, how do you try getting a guy like that to talk to you? For him, it's mostly his agency, right? He was a uh, CAA, so it's going through this. And you know, people I've dealt with before, um, 
going through them because I don't even think the Sixers could. I mean, I had to introduce myself to him at one point. I don't know. He probably wasn't paying. He didn't really pay attention, but told him who I am, what I'm doing. I'm around. Would love to talk. He kind of gave me like a nod or whatever. It was polite, but just, you know, one of those. I'll call it like an empty, polite conversation. Like, you know, it's 30 second conversation. Um, but from there, just it's really just going through the agency. Like, I don't even know. I mean, the Sixers could bring something to Joel Embiid, but I don't even know how often they do that. Um, it's really like when a guy like that power and that the guy of that stature, and maybe not in all organizations or not all players, but with him, um, the agency is in charge and like things go filtered through them. So it's going back and forth with them, many emails back and forth and trying to explain what you're interested in, what I'm doing, why he, why I think, you know, putting on the sales pitch a little bit about why I think it would benefit him. Um, I guess I didn't do a great sales job <laughs> because he never did, but yeah, it's kind of, that's the way I would go about it. Was it the same trying to get, uh, Ben Simmons, trying to get Markel Fultz, trying to get whoever is it? Yeah. Is it? Yep. The same, a lot of that, the same, exactly. <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, you're, obviously you're significantly younger than I am. It seems like dealing with a modern NBA, it's just a pain in the ass. It seems like, cause I'm telling you like past books I worked on, perfect example. I write the Showtime book about the Lakers, the, the PR guys mm-hmm. for the Lakers, could not have been more helpful. It was John Black. He's no longer with the Lakers. He could not have been more helpful. Anyone I needed to talk to, and a lot of those people still work with the Lakers or affiliated with the Lakers, he hooked me up. He helped me. They never once asked, is this going to be a negative or a positive book? They just helped. I write a book about my next book coming out about the Shaq Kobe Lakers. The PR staff is absolutely awful. They're not helpful at all. You, you can feel the hostility and sort of the, yeah, we're not really going to help you. It just seems like the NBA nowadays considering the image which is just joyful and rosy and colors and colorful personalities it seems like the league from a media standpoint is a fucking pain in the ass um it could be yeah there's some exceptions like some team like i'll mention like the miami heat i find like like i come from the perspective i'm never somebody who thinks you have to talk to me like i don't get upset like how dare player x or person x not talk to me i do get frustrated when it feels like or becomes obvious that a request wasn't even passed along, right? That's a job I want to ask. Like, I just want to know that the person, and obviously they can't do this with everybody, but with certain stories or topics or, you know, thing like a book or whatever it would be, right? You would hope that it gets passed along where the person can make their own decision. If they don't want to talk, fine. That's like, that's allowed, right? I'm not, nobody, these guys don't owe me anything. But no, for sure. I mean, a lot of the players now, it's just, I mean, think about the dynamic of the league, right? It's, it's players are really powerful. Stars matter. The contracts are shorter. Teams are very wary of stepping on a star's toes or pushing back. It's all about like the if you have a superstar, you're almost on the clock from the second they're there in terms of keeping them happy and making sure they're happy and want to stay. And I do think that you know media stuff comes into play with that. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of red tape, and it's a lot of. Uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, right? A lot of access journalism for what you know, like no different almost. You know, I've never covered this field, but I. I would be interested to talk about with like a Hollywood, a culture reporter, someone covering Hollywood or, you know, stuff like that or writing GQ story, cover stories with things like if it's kind of the same, I have a feeling it is. So Joel Embiid's not going to help. Will you go hard after the Gerald Henderson's and Sean Long's and TJ McConnell's and Nerland's yeah. Noel's? Do they become prime targets for you? And how successful were you with the B, C, D and E players? Uh, yeah, no, that's kind of my whole thing, right? You probably have this too, right? When you write these books, maybe things that other people don't 
notice as much, but like the anecdotes or scenes that you're the most proud of journalistically. And one is like, I got the scene from Jason Richardson's manager telling about how after Sam Hinkie comes and has his first, um, and he trades away Drew Holiday, who's kind of the team all-star, and it's kind of signaling that the whole process is starting, the teardown. And Jason Richardson and his manager in Sam Hinkie's office, they're talking to him and just kind of get like, okay, what's going on here? Jason Richardson is a, uh, a veteran of the team there, one of the lone remaining veterans. And uh, and at one point they leave and Sam Hinkie goes, you know, do you have any good food recommendations here? And he goes, I need a place, though, where I can sneak out the back door because everybody in the city is going to hate me. And I get that from Jason Richardson's manager. Right. Wow. It's like one of those things where I'm like proud of that because it's it's like, why? Who's, <laughs> I didn't like not like I went three levels deeper and you get. But the person was there. Right. And those are the people they are there for a lot of it. And you get those great anecdotes that are telling. He was actually really helpful. Gerald Henderson was T.J. McConnell, who um I think didn't get the memo from the team that he wasn't supposed to talk to me. So like before in the way it works in NBA locker room, you know, you have pregame access and postgame access and TJ McConnell is one of the few guys who will sit at his locker pregame. Um, and I would just hit him with random questions all the time. Like 2016 after this guy was traded, what do you remember about this? And he would answer and that stuff, you know, I don't think I ever sat with him for like 40 minutes straight, but just hitting him on that stuff randomly was really helpful. Um, so yeah, definitely lean on those kind of guys. He never said to, I don't know if I should talk to you or blah, blah, blah. Or... No, no, which is funny because another player on the team who I had a decent relationship with, like professional relationship with, right, who I'd done stuff with before, I had gone up to him and asked him um, and said, like, you know, can I do a, can we do an interview if I'm doing a book? And he said, I'll give you an hour whenever you need. And then I came back to him a month later and he said something along the lines of like, you know, the team that said, I can't do any, uh, book related interviews sorry they're they're my employer so somewhere somewhere memo was passed along but i don't know yeah i don't know how that i don't know where messages get passed along and skipped or whatever but no tj mcconnell was uh did not care at all it's like it's funny like i thanked him my acknowledgement it's not that i think he would care or that it even will get back to him but just felt right it just felt like the right thing to do that is i just want to say like you said players don't owe you anything and i agree 100 percent with that the players do not owe any of us a thing they're not getting money off of this book, blah, blah, blah. But a team's PR department, they sort of exist to help with the media. I just think it's really messed up to not only, all right, you're not going to encourage people to talk for a book, but to actively tell players not to cooperate with a book. It just strikes me as really so, wrongheaded. Yeah, so the only, and it's funny because, like, I'll say this. <laughs> I don't know. I feel, I always, I'm not sure whether to criticize the PR department. Like, it, it, a lot of these PR departments, I feel like, and I, I saw this, I'm around the Knicks a lot, and I see this around with them a lot, the stuff's coming from above them, and I think these guys sometimes are stuck in terms of, like, what do you do? Like, they're, they're a boss, whether it's a CEO, an owner, or whatever, has some kind of rule, team president, just no, and the PR department just has to carry that out. Um, now, like, there are a few, mostly my uh, interactions with the Sixers PR department professional, there were a couple uh, a couple not-so-professional moments, I thought. Um but no, I mean, I agree with you, right? It's, it, but it's just changed. Like the PR game, a lot of it now I find, right, is that it's kind of saying no as opposed to doing actual PR, which maybe that's what their version of PR is, right? Maybe that's the whole thing. You know, the Sixers have their own Twitter account and the guys have their own Instagrams. And I mean, the, the Sixers, um, they say yes to a lot of ESPN requests. I'll say that, right? right. So it's not everyone. Um, ESPN gets like Joel Embiid did like three ESPN, separate one-on-one ESPN interviews during the uh, this season, during training, uh, whatever it's called, training camp, whatever, media day, opening day this uh, this season. So it's not to everybody. Um, 
But just to, uh, to me and many others, yeah. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine. And while we're bunkered inside because of the coronavirus, we're here talking about 503 Sports, King of the... Are you kidding me? What? Seriously, are you kidding me? I... I've been stuck inside for four days, eating moldy cold pizza and drinking watered-down coffee. And everywhere I turn, you are standing there... Just get out of my face, man. This sucks so badly, I can't even... So, no 503 sports, kings of the... Get out of my face! I'm looking at your book. You wrote a part here. You, uh, you wrote about Michael Carter-Williams when he was making his NBA debut. And you said, Carter-Williams making his NBA debut was brilliant. His handle was smooth. He was quick and fast and athletic. One possession, he'd strip a heat ball handler and charge down the floor for a dunk. And the next, he contest a shot, grab the ball, and fire a pinpoint cross-court pass. The outburst awoke the heat. They charged back in the second half and took an eight-point lead with just six minutes remaining. And that's when Carter Williams took over. Those are my least favorite parts of books to write. Like every yes. sports book <laughs> I write, I hate writing about the action that takes place in game. I hate. And you did it very well there. It's totally great. And I, But I wonder, did you? Find, what I find a lot is I'm always trying to uh, limit that as much as I can. But it's actually really hard to do because you are writing about sports teams and sports seasons. And I wonder what your your approach was to writing about games. So you know what's funny though? I think that's maybe because this this team is so crazy and hilarious. Like there may be three sections where I actually write about the games, which is pretty funny. Like that's one of them. Um, there's a uh, a playoff series against the Boston Celtics that they lose, like in 2018. That I do, and then there's like the Kawhi game, that game seven, which I that I felt comfortable. Um, going a little longer on right like going in depth on but yeah no i agree with you right it's weird and like and, and for the and for that reason it's why i only felt there were three games worth writing about like i felt like the start of it with i mean that's funny because you know that starts off the process michael carter williams everyone's great they win their first three games and then they lose like the next 20 or whatever the number is i found myself very conscious of trying to speed through it right i don't like i think that's the part and when i read i think i skim over that stuff a lot this is my problem i find with writing about sort of young teams and, and i struggle with this too mm-hmm. Are these guys interesting? What I mean is you're Ben Simmons or you're whoever, Joel Embiid, and you're 20-whatever years old, and you make a lot of money to play basketball. And you play basketball today, and then you play basketball tomorrow, and then you play basketball the next day. And then next year, you'll play more basketball. And for the next 10 to 15 years, you'll be playing basketball quite a bit. Um, Did you find it all hard to find the interest when guys do such a single-minded focus? It's a good question. I know what you're saying. Like, I find this a lot in my my day job with like profile writing, right? Where it's like you're doing a profile on the same guy and like, am I supposed to do the same story of he's proving the haters wrong, right? You know, <laughs> chip on the shoulder. Right. That one, which is like sort of all they have to say. Um, this one, yes and no, right? So it's funny. So Ben Simmons is one of the bigger names around the Sixers. I think if, we, if you count up the pages, like him, I did not devote... I kind of sped through his backstory a little bit, right? I did not devote a ton to him, uh, to who he was as a person, because I find him pretty... I mean, there's weird stuff about him not shooting, and that would come later. But, and I... You know, some other things there now, I think, like, you know, reading about him now, hearing things he says about the Australian wildfires or politics in Australia, but that kind of came after, so there might be more in-depth there. But in terms of, like, the time frame that he was in the book, no, I agree, there wasn't much there. But the guys I focused on, I did feel like there was stuff. So whether it's, um, or at least enough in the backstory. So, like, Jaleel Okafor I read about, and he's somebody who, 
you know, people know him as kind of his NBA career went off the rails and he was on TMZ for being drunk in public. But he's somebody I mean, interesting is kind of a cold word for this, but he's somebody who his mother died in front of him. Right. She was started coughing and he thought she was joking and he runs to the says, I'm going to take cookies if you keep coughing. And it turns out she's has I was a bronchitis or whatever it is, but they rush to the hospital and she dies and he still blames himself. Right. And I kind of he kind of always had these demons. And I feel like that relates to why somebody like that, when they get to the NBA, they'll start drinking more. Right. So is that, you know, interesting is a cold word, but I did find there was depth there. Maybe that's a better word. Right. Guys like and then who I mean, so the guys I focused on. So him or somebody like Brett Brown, who honestly, it's funny. So him, I don't know if I find him so interesting. There's just a lot there to explain. Um, and Embiid's the one I actually do find Joel Embiid interesting. Um, he's just the idea. So like, yeah, it's kind of a cliche the guy discovered, or you can say it's a cliche the guy who never picked up a basketball until he's about 15 or whatever. Um, masters it pretty quickly, comes to America. He's got all this personality, but does he really have this kind of personality? He's really more of an introvert than people realize. Um, I found there was a lot there to a lot there to just kind of delve into in terms of storytelling. Um, so I guess I answer you like yes and no, right? I, I agree with what you're saying with a lot of guys. I guess maybe the way to put it is I was lucky that there were so many options here um, that the guys I could focus on and addendum to that like some of the guys who had major roles in the story actually do have depth or quote unquote interesting things in their background. It's an interesting thing writing a book because. Um I like, uh, I don't even know. You can pick anyone who played for the Hollis Thompson, a shooting mm-hmm. guard, right? So Hollis Thompson, let's see, grand total, played for the Sixers from 2013, 2017. You know, not a very household name guy, averaged seven points in his time in Philly. Let's say you're writing this book and you find Hollis Thompson really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Is it okay to make Hollis Thompson a big part of the story of this era of the Sixers? Even if on the surface he's not that big a, a part of the story of the Sixers, like can you, do you feel like as the narrator of a book, you are allowed to take in any direction you want? Is it okay for your personal experiences to impact the direction the book takes? That's an interesting question. It's funny because I was thinking about this actually recently. Who do you mention? I don't know where I heard you say this, Ritus or whatever. Like in a in a Lakers book, you mentioned somebody like not Nick Van Exel, but there was somebody you mentioned that you had this for recently. It makes sense. Like a shooting guard or someone, um, maybe Isaiah Ryder. Is that him or someone else? In one of your books, you mentioned that you had someone like that yeah. who you kind of made him, you know, he wasn't somebody you thought it was, it was Isaiah Ryder. Is that the guy? Well, I've had every book I've had someone wind up be, be a main yeah. guy who I didn't even know existed. And after you said this and I was like, Oh, I didn't really have that this time, which is fun. Interesting. Um, I think it depends on the story. This one, I felt like there were certain guys I had to make sure to hit, right? Like I had to Brett Brown, Joel Embiid, Sam Hinkie. Um, those were kind of, I guess those are the main ones, right? Am I forgetting one else? I guess Ben Simmons also a little bit, even though I, like I'm saying, I did it in the slightest way possible. Um, other than that, I mean, part of it's funny, you know what it is, the way the team was built too. Like no, none of these, no one was there for more than a year and a half, two years anyway. That's part of it. Like there was such a rotating door that there wasn't anyone who's had who had the ability to have any impact on the team. And I think that was probably part of it as well. So I feel like you can do it just in this story. There really was no there was no opportunity. Like who's been there? That's in the end. The story, like the book's about Sam Hankey. Howard Beck's funny. He mentioned how Sam 
sorry, the book's about Sam Hinkie's plan and what came of that. And like Howard mentioned on my podcast with him and I hadn't phrased it like this, but it was, it's interesting how like Sam's kind of a shadow in the book, which I thought was a good phrase, a good description. Um, it ends up being like the two people who are in the book more, Brett Brown and Joel Embiid, because they're the ones, the only two people who've really been there the entire time. The rest has been this crazy revolving door, which is like what makes the story um, interesting, um, I think, or one of the things that makes it interesting. But yeah, it kind of took away the ability to uh, to freelance, right? I think the I think the people that I figured would be the major characters going in, for the most part, ended up being the major characters. Is the process a uh, the quote unquote process? Is it a uh... Is this success or a failure? Um, I say success. Like the way I kind of go about it, like is like the basic math. If you're a fan, like they were really bad for three years, and you have about three. I think it's about three now, and you'll get at least another two or three more, probably. Right? Of uh, in exchange for those two or three, two and a half, three really bad years, you get like five, six, maybe more years of contention. Where if you're a fan, like your team matters, and every game matters, and you're watching every game and reading every article, and your team's on Sports Center. Um, and like, I'm a Mets fan. I'm dying for that to be in the cases like for the Mets, right? Where I can watch the game where I want to watch the game every night in July or in August. Um, so yeah, no, I think, uh, I mean, like if you're asking black or white, like there were definitely issues with it and the books far from a, you know, praising of everything Sam Hinkie did and the whole process. But if I'm going like, yes, no, then yes, it was. Don't you, I don't you feel like in a way the Sixers, um, screwed up on this it's just your book isn't an attack on the sixers and it just seems oh like, yeah <laughs> like, like i just don't fully understand why they would want to have a adversarial relationship it just doesn't make sense i don't really get it jeff i have no like people that like why again i see i get why saying no at first like why when you realize this is happening and and i said this at one point during our uh, off the record conversations i which i guess does that mean i can't relay it i don't know whatever but like i said like there's a difference between people saying they want to write a book on a team and somebody saying i have a book that has a book deal that's going to be coming out in date x like right. there's a difference there um why, yeah, why they never brought me in? Like, so I know part of it is they have this weird relationship with Sam Hinkie in the process that they're kind of embarrassed by it. They don't love it, though they say that at one day and then the next they trademark trust the process, right? So they can make money off that. So whatever, take with that as you will. Um, yeah, no, but I don't have, I literally, I legitimately do not have a, a way to even get like an explanation to even offer as to why you wouldn't try to bring me in. Like, why would you not try to work me? Right. I'm not saying I'm workable, but like, how do you know that? Right. Why would you not try to work me or sell me or play me or whatever? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. I have no idea. Because now you can promote the book and you know, when you're not promoting the book as the book, the best book in a pandemic ever written, <laughs> you could also promote it as like the book the Sixers didn't want you to read. And it's actually kind of funny because it's true. The Sixers obviously didn't want anything to do with this book. And, it almost makes you kind of a sympathetic figure in a, in a journalistic sense. Not only that, and like one of my best quotes, I have like the Sixers CEO, this guy named Scott O'Neill, who um, who who is not um, he was not him and Sam Hinkie did not get along, and pretty much he helped. He was okay and well, helped push Sam Hinkie out, right? And or you know, was helping push Sam Hinkie out in the wake of everything. Um, and so I introduced myself to Scott O'Neill one time to, at a road game in Detroit. And I said what I'm doing and said, you know, you're kind of a boogeyman to process fans. And he says to me, and I introduced myself and as a journalist, and he goes to me, well, Sam did it to himself. Someone had to take the hit, right? And he, and he never said off the record, never said anything like that. That quote I've been using in every interview I give, like Sixers fans, you know, that's getting a lot of 
pick up whatever word you want to use. Like it's, it's <laughs> Sixers fans are enjoying that one. Right. And like, maybe if we have a different conversation, a full interview on it, maybe it's something I don't use. Right. It's kind of, that stuff is funky the way, you know, sometimes you can be a little flexible with that stuff. If you have another full interview and you know, he gives me other quotes and I don't have to use that one, but considering he just said that and yeah, no, it's strange. It's, it's really strange. I don't know. Yeah. Weird. Um, I want to ask you one question unrelated to your book. I am, uh, Please. Look at a story in front of me that you wrote for Bleach Report. came out in December. Is Andrew Wiggins 2.0 for real? I was actually kind of curious because, again, I haven't written that much about the NBA in a long time, the modern NBA. You decide you want to do an Andrew Wiggins piece for Bleach Report. How does it unfold from there as far as getting Andrew Wiggins and how much time can you get with a guy these days? And is it just a pain in the ass? And do you, do you, like, do you look forward to doing that kind of story? Or are you just like, ugh? I started that in the summer, reporting around him, just because it was kind of like, what's the deal with Andrew Wiggins? Like, why is this former number one pick never been good? And you start getting some decent stuff, you know, off the record. If you talk, call people um, that don't reflect well on him, and we didn't want to do the story without getting his um, his viewpoint, I guess. And we couldn't get through to him at any point, you know, in the summer, the, the, he doesn't even have an agent, which made it harder. So it was like finding his manager, the team didn't want to participate. Um, and then at one point, and then the way these things work, right. Is so he gets off to a hot start and bleach report decides, okay. And like, they have me down as writing a Wiggins story and they decide, okay, we want a, uh, we want a Wiggins piece. When can you do it? Like we want to do this week. Um, it's like, but I don't have him. So I kind of push, we find a day basically like the move I try to do is, and I'm lucky that bleach report, um, has a travel budget is mm-hmm. my key to NBA reporting is find the small city that the guy's playing in and go there. That's so like, yeah. yeah. So guys, I probably shouldn't give that away. Right. But whatever. But guys like guys on the road are more accessible than at home, right? Road locker rooms. There's no, there's less areas for them to duck away to, you know, a lot of these new fancy, a lot of these new locker rooms, they have these, the locker room area and then these old training areas in the back and players usually spend the pregame time back there. Mm-hmm. Teams don't have shoot arounds a lot at home on the road. They often do. There's less reporters there around them. Um, so like Charlotte, Cleveland's, you know, Atlanta. These are kind of go-tos Detroit, right? These are, these are great places. Think of the most boring game you can find. Um, I go to Atlanta and and my I get a total of probably three minutes with Andrew Wiggins for the story. So if you read it, there aren't many quotes in there, just a couple. How does that actually unfold? Do you go through the PR guy or do you just walk up to him? Both, right? I try to do the polite professional thing, go through PR guy first. And if I can if I see like they're not taking care of me or whatever, I'll you know, I have different phases, different levels of aggressiveness, right? So it's like kind of like give the PR guy a shot. Not happening. Go over more. You know, after the after the game, tell the guy what I'm here for. Get him again. Um, it happened to be my luck when I went there that time. Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated was there for the same reason in Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, which was like, oh come on, we're we're both in Atlanta to write an Andrew Wiggins story. Like, um, right. Funny part is the story is not aged, but like Andrew Wiggins, he got off to a hot start and he's not been great since. Um, not one of my better aged thing stories, but no. So I get um. So yeah, I kind of just try to bully my way into it a little bit, right? So you go shoot around, you go up to him, get a few quotes, you get other guys, um, you get him post game, you go up to him after the scrum is what I try to do, right? Or introduce myself beforehand. Kind of like what I like to do is when they're getting dressed, I introduce myself, say I have questions, can I ask you afterwards? You know, by myself a little different, hopefully hopefully they say yes. He was very nice and polite and happy to answer a few. It was just not a very, uh, didn't have a lot to say, which is fine. Um, Does he give a shit? Does he give a shit when you say, hey, I'm Yaron Weitzman from Bleach Report? Like, does he care? Mm, Yaron Weitzman, no. Bleach Report, sometimes, yeah. 
though a lot of times what happens is it'll just be oh hey can you uh can you get house of highlights to tweet out my instagram or something like that oh my god so, <laughs> um so that's happens um yeah so sometimes that will help um i'll try to say you know i'm doing something a little different i would like to ask you some different kind of questions away from the cameras some guys care and get it some don't which is fine um so then when i'm on a trip like that i'll spend a lot of my time trying to do like reporting you know I guess you call it off the record reporting and chats with coaches, executives, stuff like that. Just trying to pick up as many details as you can. I like, I, cause I feel like the job is to try to show readers what they can't see, right. Or yeah. tell them something they don't know. So if that's, you know, if a coach gives me something interesting about, yeah, no, he's been working on shooting off the dribble. Or if somebody says, you know, he showed up late three times, I don't know. I'm not seeing that happen here, but just different examples like that, where even if you can't quote it exactly, at least you have some more foundation to use when you're writing the piece. What's the jerkiest an athlete's ever been, ever been to you? I had a player send me a uh, Instagram message saying, well, I'm going to try to read it for you right now. If I can find it for one second. Right. You're a clown. Find better stories. Stop DMing people trying to write about my personal conversations. Fucking dweeb. So that was a good one. Uh, wow. It's <laughs> a star, too. Um, I'll take the player. <laughs> I'll right. take the player a different time. Um, I had another. I wrote the story for ESPN, a freelance piece about this guy. Um Malcolm Delaney, who is a Hawks player. Um, I don't know where he is now. The sad story where like the night he signed, he was like an overseas guy. The night he signed his NBA contract, it was like 28, 29. There's a big deal. They're celebrating and he's in Baltimore and he's partying with his brother and the brother gets shot a bunch of times and gets paralyzed basically. Um, so I did a story about that and he was not happy with the story. He called me yelling at me. Um, actually called like, your phone. Yeah, yeah, because we had done a lot back and forth. He called me and put it up, and like he called me saying, um, you, like, because I wrote that like they were drinking that night, because I mean they were right. Other people told me, and they were at a club till three a.m. You know, celebrating. Like it also, it's kind of thing. I don't need, I don't need people to tell me that, right? If you're at a club till three a.m. celebrating a contract, but also people told me. Um, and he was like, no, I, we weren't drinking. He starts cursing at me, telling me he's going to call ESPN. And I was all nervous, right? I was, this was a few years ago, and like I was freelance. It was a freelance piece for ESPN. I was excited. You know, I, was all, I got really nervous about it. He said he's going to call and get them to um, threatening me and all this stuff. <laughs> um, turns out like nothing happened of it, and like my reporting was right. I mean, I don't know. Sebastian Telfair, I did a like, what happened to him story um after his arrest and whatever he started instagramming me instagram messaging me telling me how different riverdale and coney island are and i don't know anything about them so that I was is like, true no it's a fair point fair point i was like no, no argument here that's yeah, right. um, <laughs> um yeah no it's uh there are a few no it happened there's some good ones um i don't know just i guess it, if you're not gonna do just like puff pieces and just do what guys want i think that's gonna happen especially now when so many guys like when you have the players tribune and so many places acting like the players tribune right where you're yeah. talking like you know athlete does charity and he's great um just gonna happen years ago i did a piece on uh barry bonds and um when he was still a player and it was a magazine story and i, I quoted a, a teammate of his named sean estes and he said something negative about barry bonds and <laughs> estes called me at my in my apartment in new york city and chewed me out afterwards he said you misquoted me blah blah, blah. i didn't say that i don't respect that blah blah okay right Earlier this year, we became Facebook friends. And I wrote to him and I said, <laughs> great, hey, remember when you called my apartment? I'm literally looking at this right now. Remember when you called my apartment because you were pissed at me? And I wrote, you probably don't remember, but it happened. And he goes, of course I do. It was because of Bond's piece. Good times. And I wrote, I don't remember what I did, but I'm sure I was probably wrong. That's what I wrote. Just being nice. He wrote, no, you weren't. You just quoted me. I made some negative comment about Barry that made the article. <laughs> It just made it a little more difficult to be his teammate after it came out. I had to That's tell him I was misquoted, even though I wasn't. 
I was like, eh, it happens. That's so telling, right? That's the whole thing. Like, it's like, I mean, honestly, like, that's one of the things not to, like, with the book, one of the lessons I found in the book was, you know, don't, a lot of what we hear in public is not true, right? Or in the case, it is true, but then guys are just free and happy to lie, right, in public or to the press. Like, the guy, what are you saying? I didn't say that. That's not, (laughs) I didn't say that. You're misquoting me. It's an outright lie. I get why he's doing it. Like, I don't mind, but it's an outright lie. (laughs) He literally called my apartment to accuse me of lying, and it turns out he knew I wasn't lying. Like, he... He didn't just tell Barry Bonds. He literally called me up on the phone to say, hey. Yeah, anyway, what can you do? You know what? At the end of the day, to wrap this podcast episode, your book's coming out during a pandemic, but it's the best book. It's by far the best Sixers book to come out during a pandemic. You've had a great career, man. As I, I, you know, we alluded to this in one of the previous episodes that um, (laughs) I first knew of you and knew you because you were a young, aspiring journalist in New Rochelle when I was Mm -hmm. living in New Rochelle and, and Another great writer named Jonathan Tropper and I used to share a table at the local Cozy. And um, Jonathan Tropper ended up kind of connecting me with you. And I've known you for a long time. And your your career has been great, like really great. And um, well, Thank you. Yeah, truly. And whatever happens with this book, you have an excuse if it does poorly. <laughs> and you have an amazing story if it does well. So either way. But it's an excellent book. And I, uh, I, you know, I, I applaud you for, for putting in the effort, man. Appreciate that. Thank you. Appreciate everything you've done for me. I want to thank today's guest, Yaron Weitzman, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Yaron on Twitter at Yaron Weitzman. And please support a great guy, a great writer with awful timing by ordering Tanking to the Top wherever books are sold. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember... Keep writing.